The following episode contains mentions of drug use and mental health. Discretion is advised. How are you? Sweating, yeah, and how it is. It is what it is. What it is. Our lives just took over, so what's another podcast? You know? <laughs> podcast famous. <so. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me autograph. <laughs> Are you listening? Conversations on the Margins is a limited series podcast that brings us, society, into the world of men inside the prison system. As society grapples with theories of equality, justice, and rehabilitation, we rarely hear from those we converse, read and write about. It's men, young and old, who themselves have a story to tell and advice to give. We spend our time punishing, but we are rarely listening. In our first episode, we get a glimpse into the histories of some of the men kind enough and trusting enough to let me in. If you don't mind... No, go ahead. Oh, Devon, I don't need a... I could do an acapella for you now. Do whatever you want. A nice one, yeah. All right, so it's basically called This Truth. It goes like this. Yo. I ain't an Irish lad, I had an Irish dad. Mum said he was dead in a buff arm, oh, man. Try and understand, I tried to be the man. But man was just a youth, so I ran with a gang. Social put me in care, I lived with my nan. 16, I got locked in the can. Learned how to rap because I couldn't use my hands. That's when I knew that God had a plan. Alcohol and drugs meant the devil was my fan. Homelessness and prison lean, I never gave a damn. All I cared about was gear, I never thought about the fam. My mental health was fucked, so I guess I just ran. No one else cared, I do this for my gran. Even though it's half of me cause I never sang, yo. Even though it's half of me cause I'm not Adele. But this is my truth and it's straight from myself. This is something that you never heard before. Hey, and it's hard when you're locked behind the door, listen. But Lynn, I know that you're listening, because you know that I've been there up on the wing. Yo, you need to open up, but that's something, a little snippet there, yeah? Oh, I and love uh, that. people need to open up and, and, and understand, you know, and try but and be I'm a man. What I'm getting from that is there's yeah. opening up, but then yeah. there's the part that you talk about, I know that you're listening. Yeah. And that's quite profound. It's like, you know, are people listening? Mm. And are they going to listen? Well, I came with a good boxing family, so my uncles and my grandparents are all boxers, so... Um, and what about your dad then? Was he was Yeah, he, a boxer? he was a boxer, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. He married Jack Russell. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was a boxer, yeah. Sorry, man. All of these conversations happened in Weefield Prison. In the lead-up to these conversations happening, we felt it was important to really get to know the men that we were asking so much of and to build trust with the men who are engaging in an educational process within the Weefield Prison. So in the lead-up to recording the podcast, we spent up to four or five days in there carrying out workshops, just having conversations and talking about life with all the men that you'll hear from throughout the series. So coming out live from inside the jail, I'm fucked the out with that shitty man, straight sex and killed, and I'll be getting bail. When I get back out, I'm going to blaze a trail, check it. Marty, over the last few weeks, what I've experienced when we come in here and do the workshops and stuff is a real leader, like someone that actually is um, working, a real group player and encouraging. Right. And um, I know in the workshops that we've come in and done, you've, um, you've been really beneficial to us. 
And I just want to kind of start by giving you that compliment in the sense nice. that, yeah. you know, nice I watch yeah. I watch you with the lads and the younger lads and you can see them really looking up to you actually and listening to your direction and just how you are with them and how encouraging you are and how much of a team player you are. And they seem to really follow your suit in a really positive way. Right, right. You know, and so I'm really looking forward to today's chat because in my head I'm going, well, where where does that come from? Like, you know, when I, I'm wondering, like, is that who you've always been? Like, as a child, you know, where you the where you the kind of where you the, where you the leader in a group? Where you the leader in your classroom? Like, what was sport like? Tell me, just give me an insight, I suppose, to young Marty. Young Marty. Well, uh, growing up, we had a lot of places to go when we were kids. In the house estate we lived in, we'd kind of had to travel to another estate to get to the fields where we played in. There's was big fields there, there's a big monastery there, monks and all that, you know. So it was an adventure getting there. So to go to one area, to get to another area, it's like ducking and diving all the time. But then when we got to the monks area, it was, uh, that was our den. We'd have all huts built and, you know, making, making yokes and this and that. And you get chased then out of the place or something like that. So it was always an adventure. They could always, like, uh, if the monks caught you, they'd make you pay with days for a month and all that. So we were always on the, on the watch. Now, that was that, the story. Is that, is that just a, yeah, okay. That that's was the story. So we were always watching. <laughs> Keep, someone keeps kids, make sure the monks don't steal and all that. So uh, that was our big playground. There was a big maze there. There was, uh, we'd make ropes for the trees and swings and all. So that was our, our events. And then when we got the bikes, then we'd go full of the field. We'd probably down to the big St. Anne's Park. And we'd use that as our playground. So we were always, the gang was going somewhere. But we'd always have to go through certain estates, which we weren't meant to be going through, you know. Well, the police didn't like us in them estates because they were more, um, what do you call it, snobby, snobby estates. So that, that's interesting. You're not yeah. the first person to say that over the course of the week is that um, there was places as a young person growing up in a working class community that if you were seen in those places, you would be told to leave them. Oh, 100%, it's- yeah. They'd come down and there'd be certain policemen, you'd know them then, you'd get to know them. And they would like, they'd jump out of the car, grab you by the hair. What are you mm. doing here? Kicking you and all that, you know? Yeah. And a few times, if, if we were in the wrong area, and they'd catch us, they'd put us in the back of the car. They were only, we were only 12 to 14. And they'd drive us up to the, the top of Dollymount Beach, and there's a big black road there, and they'd take his shoes off, and they'd make you run. And if you didn't make it to the end of that road, before they got down in the car, they'd give you a hiding. And would you have to carry your runners? Oh, yeah, go, go in that house, yeah. yeah. I like, you'd peg it, like, boom. Yeah. And uh, you're sweating, and then uh, you have to walk home. Then you know. So, uh, so we were we were never. It was like you're not allowed in this area, and keep out of this area. And that that was the we got stay in our own area. And how did you understand that at the time? Then we just thought it was just that's the way it was. It was just wasn't them like so. You were always stuck in the diving, yeah. you know, just to get to the place where you wanted to be. Like to sit with the place we used to go to St Anne's Park, a huge park, lovely park, and we used to go down there on the bikes and there. There was this, there used to be a place called the Seven Hills. So it's all seven big hills, so we used to go in there on our bikes. Now, we wouldn't have the top of the range BMXs. We'd all make you up bikes. You know, one what big wheel, one small wheel, you know? You tell me about that. So did you make, did people make We used make to make the bikes ourselves in the area. Like, we'd be there. Like, if you get an old frame somewhere, then you get the chain and you get the, the, the wheels. Probably two odd wheels. We wouldn't care. And you go down and you'd, be, uh, you'd pump up the wheels of the garage. You know, I mean, get a drink of water out of the old tap. <laughs> Poison tap. <laughs> but actually, we'd be drinking out puddles and all we would. Drinking <laughs> out puddles. <laughs> we only kids, like, but yeah. uh, we used to have mad bikes. Uh, you could have one wheel big, one wheel small, and chains hanging off, and on, 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 on route repairs and all, you know? It's giving someone a backer or someone a crossbar, you know? <laughs> Deadly, yeah. 
That's how oh, great that's like, a yeah. fun. Did you? Did you? I was great. Yeah, I used to have the dogs. We used to love the dogs. We used to have the. Uh, used to be the dogs as well, you know. Tell us a bit. What? Tell us a bit about the dogs. What you like? Did you all have your own dog yeah, or yeah, certain yeah, types of dogs? Yeah, we had uh, a little staff a bull terrier. He's great to us, and uh, we all everyone knew the dog, you know. So he's uh, he used to always be with us, and every night then he's a little jacker, and. Uh, he didn't like his jacket because he wasn't, wasn't as big as the yoke. He used to embarrass him. He used to go mad. <laughs> but uh, there was a few funny stories with him, yeah. One time, Jesus Christ, we were at the back of the shopping centre. We were all sitting there. The dogs were there. We were all sitting there. You know, a little group. And his little jacket started hooking and bleeding. I don't know what it was. It was a bag or something like that. He was going mad. He fit the jacket and was going, get that back in because the thing was hanging over. It was hard to, to, to scream to you had though, you know. But uh, so funny. he he was embarrassed of his little jacket. Of his little jacket, yeah. Because my dog is a little stuffy, little, little spike, you know. So it was really ego, was it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, we used to have to crack them. We used to have a little, that was our little, a little group that we grew up for years. And then as as you get older, people go to different directions, you know. But uh, it was good, yeah. What was school like for you? School was hard. School was um, it was a big school. And you had this, the snobs on one side mixed with us as well, and not just saying it, but they did get the better seats in the class, they just say, you know? Yeah. But um, we, at the time in the school, we would, uh, if we did that wrong, we were brought down and, and caned. We brought down to the prison office, the hand was out, and he was out with a big uh, stick. But I remember the first time I got battered by a teacher was uh, employment school. But uh, she used to bring us down, and she used to clatter us around the place, you know? But that's for nothing, you know? But you think about hours for nothing. Yeah. You know, just being cheeky or something like that. I don't know. But you, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it now. But then the school, the primary school was like that as well. You got the beatings. And then there was a the odd teacher there that bring you into the corridor and give you a beating. You know? Whenever one time I left it back, I was getting a bad beating off the, off the teacher. <coughs> my, my, my cat was on up the road, so I jumped over the wall and I flew up to the gap, totally out. The other tore down. Try to make out of the class. Don't mind you. <laughs> a few digs, a few alleys. I used to learn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was what's, it, what's it like to experience violence so young? Uh, at the hands of somebody that's supposed to be... Supposed to be looking after Providing you, yeah. you an education. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you didn't really want to learn then, you know? You didn't really want to learn. It was just kind of like... It was always us or them. There was always this, this certain few people in the classroom that were... From the other area, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not just saying that. Yeah, yeah, but no. it always yeah. was that way, yeah. you know, that's the way it was. But they seem to get the better treatment there. How how does that feel then? Do, do you wonder as a child, why am I being treated different than them? Does it make you feel a certain way? Uh, when you look back now, when I, I, I always question my own kids about how they're getting out, their kids are getting on a school. I was just checking, you know, and it's completely different. And I've been around with the schools with my young kids, and the whole thing with the schools now has changed a lot, which has changed people a lot, lot better. The teachers are a lot more civil. The, the way they learn the kids is a lot more civil. The way they communicate with the kids is a lot more civil. And if there's a kid that's a bit, um, what would he say years ago, stupid or backwards or something like that, mm-hmm. they know it, it, it's, it's, only, it's, not, it's, it's not the kid's fault. The kid has a problem. So they'd have a class, especially SMA teacher for them. <coughs> and the SMA teacher would sit with them and go through everything, which is brilliant. Whereas in air day, that would never happen. Mm. You'd be thrown out and you'd be told to stand outside the door. And that's, that'd be you for the whole day. So there was none of that back in air day. But I think now it's, it's, it's a change in a lot, and a lot, a lot, a lot for the better. 
Yeah. What did you do after school then when you finished school? I got a job. I was doing a bit of um, plumbing and that. So then uh, after that, then I was in a bit of a car crash and I, I, I brought me back two places. So that put me out there from the, uh, the manual work, you know. So I kind of recovered from that. But uh, a little bit of school to work. It's a piece, as you know, dealing with people. It's always good with dealing with people. If I've seen a fight, I wouldn't... I'd not have to talk to people. The fuse are very quick, you know. Like when I was walking in, the, in some places, they'd be fellas and they'd be used blokes, you know. They'd be squaring each other. Now, we were only a small little friend of a, of a fella. Then. But I'd better talk to them. And they'd be looking at me going, who the fuck do you? So he said, one fella said, I'll pick you up and throw you across the room. I just go on then. Let <laughs> <laughs> you see it. You know, I was just, I was just, just on the ground. But then I was a few saying, then it was grand. Where, where did you learn that skill then to try um, and use your words to defuse situations? I, maybe it was because I was in the boss club years ago and there was, dis, was discipline there, you know. You, you were always told never use your skills are learning outside the, on the street. And that was always a no go. Even though you knew you could handle yourself, you'd never do it. Yeah. Did, about, you, yeah. did you box yourself or just train? I boxed when I was a young yeah. It brought me off to London before and I boxed over there. Uh, I boxed for the Dublin Championships and won that. I was only, I think it was only 13 or 14. But I came with a good boxing family, so my uncles and my grandparents were all boxers, so kind of like led into that, you know. But it was great. Um, and what about your dad then? Was he, was yeah, he a boxer? Yeah, he was a boxer, yeah. 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 Imagine Jack Russell. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was a boxer, yeah. Sorry, man. But uh, yeah, yeah. He he done a bit as well, yeah. Yeah. Do you miss boxing? Yeah, no, well, I do, yeah. But I do it up here in the gym. I, and, uh, I'd be doing a little training programme with the lads and we used to bag a lot and use the pads and do a lot of car work and training. It's just, it's good. You get a, once you get the routine going, mm. like you have an hour or whatever it is, but we used that hour up to the, up to the second, like, you know. And it, it brings it back to the boxing club because it's just like you're actually not in prison anymore. Yeah, you're not. You're just there training, training. And everything's getting out, yeah. The lads are getting their frustrations out in the bag. They're doing the little exercises and every, everything is go, 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 go. And then after an hour, you're going, what the fuck? That was great. And you feel great. You're walking down the land of scrams, you know? You said something there that, that time, actually, that stands out to me. You were like, it's like for a moment you're not in prison oh, for that hour. Yeah. Is there any like, other moments like that? Mostly when you're training. Like, if you try and get training as much as you can, you know? Uh, Training just takes it away, you know, because it could be in any gym in Dublin or any, anywhere in the world training, and you're still training. It doesn't matter what environment you're in. Whether it's a prison environment or a, a, a fancy gym out at Black Rock, mm-hmm. you're still doing the same thing. So, it's, you know what I mean? You, 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 your mind is focused on what you're doing, so you're gone. growing up when I was younger, as I say, I always wanted to be a fireman, you know, but back then you had to have leaving certs and I was through the children's courts, you couldn't get out with criminals, you had to have a certain height and stuff like that, like, but then the, the addict in me, I suppose, took over and I was wandering around with the bottles of vodka and the orange juice in the bottle and that was my way of getting away with carrying a bottle of orange juice and vodka saying I wanted to be a fitness instructor, you know. So that was the fireman thing out the window, but that's what I really wanted to be. That the end of it all was be a fireman, you know. So, and where did that come from? Where, where, where do you first remember seeing a fireman? 
When my dad had his workshop across from me, he used to be uh, one of the chiefs in the fire thing. I used to always see him in the lorries and the trucks and the uniform and all. That's just something I always was into. I always, like, always see a good, healthy, fit fireman. You never really see a fat one, you know, that type of <laughs> way. Like, so that's where, where I wanted to get it from. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And I'm dyslexic, so we, uh, the skill wasn't, wasn't that for me, you know what I mean? So I can do what I want with my hands, so... You don't need much theory to be a fireman to run up and down the ladder, like you know what I mean. Tell like, me a so. little bit about school then. School, well, like as I say, I'm studying, trying to get into the OU here now, and they want me to get letters about being dyslexic. So I'll give you a funny one. I was on to the mass. Says, "Will you get us the letters from the school about being dyslexic?" He says, "Son, I never got any letters. I was just told I had two thick children." <laughs> so that's that's genuinely where wow. that's where we came from, you know. Like it wasn't there was no. Like, right, he's going to be good at this or he's going to be good at that. We were just thick and that that was it, like, you know what I mean? There was no no cure. We had to go to a special class, like, for this, for doing certain subjects and stuff like that. So you were seen as being special, but as basically being thick, like, you know what I mean? Like, And that's, that genuinely came from my mind two weeks ago. So I was just told I had a thick son. Not we can help you or we can do anything like that. Just he was thick and that was it, like, you know what I mean? And, and so how difficult did that make school life then when you were younger? Well, I didn't really go to school, I... Um, I stayed at home, I hid in the attic more times than anything else. Like, I, I hid there under the weed, bit of floorboards. I hid under the floorboards when my man and I went out, and that was me getting off school. Like, I barely just made my junior shirt. And the only thing I, why I did the junior shirt was because I had to have something. And that, like, there was no way I was going for leaving or anything like that. But I just barely made it. And when I got the junior shirt, I, was, I don't even, can't even tell you what I got. I just know I passed it, couldn't tell you it was good or bad. But we had someone sitting beside us doing our junior shirt and everyone was looking at you like, oh, that's, that's our Anto, he's the tick fella, he has to have the teacher with him, like, you know what I mean? So that's, was, there was never, well, we can help you with this or we can do any of that, it was just you were ticking and that was genuinely it, like, you know? That's where, as far as skill went for me, like, the only good thing I can remember from skill was the wood shop and I loved it because I was doing something with my hands and that's where I could show my little bit of talent Whereas his English mats or any of that type of stuff, forget about it. Like it's Is that why you hid under the floorboards? I didn't because want to you felt like you were thick? Yeah, well, so what's the point of going to school when everyone else around you knows what they're doing and your man next to you knows what they're doing and I, I'm mixing my B's and my D's and I'm, even my numbers is all backwards and all and then you're trying to hold, like you're a teenager and you're trying to show that to your mate next to you and they're laughing. Like I do always to class my writing is chicken scratching because it's bad. With a daughter at home, she she writes ten times better than me, man, and she's only ten, like. So, like, her writing, even my writing now at this age, is completely different, like, you know. I, I never, never read letters, I wouldn't write, like, Christmas cards or anything like that because my writing's that bad, like. So how do you manage that then in here, then? Because obviously, for many people, uh, the written form of communication is how people communicate with their loved ones at home and express themselves. The way, the way my, I, if I write a letter outside, I class it as like braille coded writing. My family understands me writing, but anyone else doesn't. So if I had to write a letter to someone outside my circle, I'd probably write it two or three times because then I, I'd get neater and neater each time and then I'd probably write that is actually wrong, I'll try this with that. But 
as my own close family, they they understand the chicken writing, like so. That's chicken yeah, that's what that's what I call it. Everyone calls it actually. It's just like a scribble, but they, they mastered how to. I can't even write back my writing sometimes, but they can, like you know. But if I'm writing to someone outside my circle, yeah, it's two or three times I have to write that letter before I'll actually send the letter, like so. Like it can can be hard when you when you're sitting in a cell and you're writing and you're constantly writing and then you've no one to ask and you don't want to ask anyone at the same time, like like yeah, what. My down here and it's something silly like you know do you still get feelings of um you know like shame or embarrassment that like you know that young anta would have felt in school say when you're being laughed at or you know when you showed your b's and your d's being backwards does that put you off asking for help now do you still get a little bit of a hangover from that yeah well i get like not as much now but like because it's hard to get used to certain people that's around you now but it, it is hard like it's not something that I'll willy-nilly and come up to you and just show you straight off here, look what you think of this, like, no. I'd have to know you and have a little bit of trust and a bit yeah. of a bond with you before I'll actually show you and say, right, well, this is my walk here. I hate showing me walk, like, I've loads of walk there, but don't like showing it, like. Yeah. I try, but it doesn't... It's not there, like, because then when they ask, what's that, I don't know what it is. But I did at the time when I was writing it, but my spellings is, is that wrong. I can't actually read it back myself, like, you know. So it does be hard sometimes, especially when you're trying to do a little bit of something for yourself and you can't look, you know Well, I mean? you're well able to talk, right? Mm. So not everything is written communication, like, you know, and the, the fact that you very clearly are able to orate your experiences, which is to just talk through your experiences, that's not lesser than being able to write. I think we, we put this huge emphasis in academia on being able to write in a particular way. Yeah. And it actually undermines the value of all the other different types of communication that we have. So I just want to kind of say that you, you, you're a great communicator and not all communication has to be well, in the written form. Told I can talk a lot of stuff for right? yeah, as well. <laughs> but now, that's how I get, boy, I... Give me something to do with paper now. Give me something to do with my hands and, yeah, no bother at all. I'll, I'll give her a go and I'll, I'll master it, like, when it's to do with my hands. But when it's to do with putting a pen to paper, not a chance, like, you know what I mean? It's, it's not there, like. Yeah, well, I hope you do put value, I suppose, on the other stuff that you do in an equal way, you know, and don't get too caught up in the, the written word stuff as somehow being more superior than all the stuff that you do with your hands. Yeah, it was when I was younger and I went to do my mechanics and be a mechanic, I actually got on with the teacher and he said it to me, he says, look, you can do the practical end of things. He says, when is a mechanic going to be sitting in an office writing down all this, that, and you're like, you're not. So you're good on the floor. That makes a good mechanic for me. So that's really as well what gave me a boost to say, yeah, listen, try this, give this a go and see how you get on. And then that's what made me continue going on to being a, couldn't finish and being a mechanic like you know what I mean get me qualifications in it like. so listen you said you left school after your junior cert yeah what what happened then where did you go and what did you do sat in my room and got stoned yeah. to be honest with you that's all I did and um, Teofla got a pain in his ass with me so he knew this hell as well I got into the cars he knew a fella that had a garage and he said listen he said you're not staying in this house you have to get out and get yourself a few quid and I said, right, so he said, I said, what am I doing? He said, braking. I thought I was fixing brakes on the cars, but I was actually taking the cars apart. But other than that, I was just sitting in the room and getting stoned every day. Like, What age were you when you forced some drugs? Well, I was 12 when I started smoking hash first. Mm-hmm. Like, I was smoking probably when I was 10, but I started smoking hash when I was 12. Like, you know, that's, that's what was the big thing back then. Like, mm-hmm. I gave up smoking cigarettes and all I ever did was smoke joints. 
You know what I mean? I stopped smoking joints when I was in my twenties. Okay. So it was, didn't, that's when I started smoking cigarettes again. It was always a joint. If I didn't have the joint, the head was wrong. That was the way. It was Did the you hassles. find it, 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 it relaxed you a little bit? Was it? Yeah, I took the anxiety and stuff away from me. You know what I mean? Like that. Like it's the anxiety and depression is it's a hard thing. Like when we were growing up, like it was wasn't something that was talked about. And if you go to the doctor, where anxiety and depression and saying you're taking drugs the doctor looks at you as a dual diagnosis so you can be clean for so many years but then you go back about your mental health and they won't actually you can't do anything for you no, no, I've only learned this since I came to jail this time mindfulness and stuff no doctor has ever told me anything about mindfulness now I probably would have laughed at them on the outside don't get me wrong but it's it's working in here you know mm. no one ever told me right well this is what you can do without actually being put on antidepressant tablets or I was wasn't aware of any of that. But now I'm I'm actually I'm into that now, like and I find the help in a, a lot, like, you know. So I'd like to get to the mindfulness bit, but if you don't mind, um I'd love to kind of go back a little bit to those um teenage years because I think you've mentioned some important things. So you mentioned obviously um the difficulty in school. Yeah. Um and you mentioned uh, depression and anxiety. Do you think, as a young person, that you were dealing with depression and anxiety? At oh, that age? I used to sit in the room and hear voices and all. I thought it was, yeah. I thought that was the norm. Like you know what I mean? But how, how do you tell? Like you know? And back then, going back to the poor mother as well, the school sent me to see counsellors, and that was shamed upon in, in the family or in the area. It wasn't something that everyone said, oh, I'm seeing now people see counsellors if they're spilling a bit of milk on the counter. <laughs> but back then, you, you couldn't see it because the family was shamed and stuff. Well, I was took over all that because it was seen as, no, 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 this, you're, you're all right. It's a shameful thing to go see and talk to someone. But that was then. It's come a long way now, like, and... For the skill to notice for me to go see a counsellor was it was enough it was a lot for them to cop onto it. But it was it was you were deemed as being crazy, like, you know, even with your mates and all like Antos, he's a head case, like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like he's hearing things or I'd go off on one or I'd back myself in the room or do certain things that like not normal people because there's no one normal, do you know what I mean? But my mates didn't do and then that was that took me back a bit more then again. I was like, what do I do? Where do I get it? So the only reason I got out of that was taking drugs and drinking. That was my numbness to it all, like, you know what I mean? And and that was from my, like, in my early teens, like. And how have you managed now to move to a place where you're not numbing with um, substance? Um, talk me through a little bit of that journey, will you? Well, when I got claimed for the first time, was... This is the first time I was actually after living, not existing, like, you know, and I realised there's more to this, like, yeah, right, we all, everyone has problems and stuff like that, but when I was clean, I could deal with the problems. Like, I'm always good at fixing everyone else's problems by my own, you know, but when you're clean, I can work on fixing my own. And then I had the kids and stuff like that. My kids, like, they they mean a lot. Like, the kids keep you get you through an awful lot of stuff that you don't realise, like, you know. Not too long before I came back in, this time I was really depressed. And I had a daughter that dances, and she could actually tell when I wasn't in a, a good like state of mind. She'd dance in front of me for two hours without stopping, like mm. genuinely. And that was just to get my head going. That's the, it's the likes of that is what picks you up and keeps you going. When you know you have good, strong people around you, and 
they listen to and basically start to understand you, take your awareness and they roll with your craziness, but yet they can stop you at your madness. Like It's when you realise you have that connection with the two kids, like, you know what I mean, with my son, my son's my best mate, my daughter's the carer, like, you know, that's the way it works yeah. with the two of them. And then that's what makes you drive and go forward and, like, what well, makes me drive and go forward and want to do better than myself, like, for them two alone, like. episode you're going to hear from just a number of the men that engaged and the reason that we've put these in the first episode is because in spending time in the school within the prison in the lead up to recording the podcast they stood out to me as people that were really wanting to articulate their lives and their stories didn't mean that they weren't very nervous or very scared some of them have never listened to a podcast before so you're going in and you're asking will you do a podcast and they're like, well, how can my family listen to it? And then you might say, well, on a smartphone. And they're going, well, we've never actually had access to a smartphone. In the first few episodes, what you're going to do, and especially the first episode, you're really going to get a bit of an insight into the origins of people's stories. And I think that that is so important for us to be able to hear that because so many reports come out to show that there's a number of factors that will lead to people ending up in prison. Poverty is one, inequality is one, institutionalisation from a very early age in terms of bias homes, in terms of ending up in, say, young offenders systems at a very young age. In this episode, what we wanted to do is to try and just capture the variation of that and the connection, I suppose, between how we start out in life and this situation where we may end up in the prison system. And in the first episode, you'll hear from men that I feel have really done a lot of thinking and reflecting and are able to really pinpoint them moments in early life that changed the course of their life forever. And in some cases have led to them participating in crimes that they feel actually is really against their nature of who they are as humans. And the crime that they committed doesn't necessarily match the men that are presented to us today when we sit down to have those conversations. If we were to know and if people were to know who Alex really is, what he's about, where he's from, um, I'd love to try and capture a little bit of that. So do you mind talking to me a little bit about no. life growing up? No, 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 no problem at yeah. all. Like when, I, when we were young, uh, I suppose it was strange for us because my father was in the army. So... <laughs> We were, like in a lot of cases, when you when people would be saying you'd be slagged, when we were going to school and that, I remember a distinct memory I have is my sister coming home one day and she was crying because this girl was bullying her and saying that we were poor and that the windows were broken in her house and we'd no money and all that. And my mother was saying, what the, what the fuck does she know about it? Her, uh, like her mother's on the social welfare. And I remember distinctly my father saying, but sure, that's exactly what she's on about because I'm in the army and her parents are in the social welfare, so they are better off than we are because they had their rent paid for and they had clothes clothes provided for and they had, I suppose, they were wealthier. And how how many children? Four. And a stepbrother as well. So my mother had been married before, which was a strange thing as well because... I didn't know until later on in life there was a bit of angst between my grandmother and my father because 
My father was a soldier. He was younger than my mother. She had been married before. And this was back in the <clears throat> 70s, 80s, I suppose. She kind of wanted my mother to wear the veil and be mourning her husband for the rest of her life type of thing. But uh, So your mother was widowed? She was widowed, yeah. And uh, she had a son died as well, her husband, and her son died from uh, cystic fibrosis. Uh. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that was different. All right, so there was four of us and my brother, which probably wouldn't have been accounted for in my father's army pension either. But, uh, yeah, it was happy, a happy home, kind of, I suppose, where we grew up. And I went to, uh, I went to a Christian brother's school. That was torture. That's one of my worst memories of what was, childhood. What was so torturous about it? It was just so regimental and it was like designer beaters for beating kids and that kind of thing, you know. And 400 boys in the school. There was a few fellas in my class. The one thing I remember about it was I was kind of second smallest in the class and the smallest fella used to always sit next to me and I discovered in a kind of harsh circumstances one day why he used to sit next to me because he was hiding from the Christian brother because he used to write with his left hand. Brother used to be screaming that he was possessed and that what kind of a woman did he come out of and all this kind of <laughs> slander that used to go on. But the, f the first time I saw the brutality behind it, I suppose, he was sitting beside me one day and next thing all of a sudden, at one of them, they used to have these leather straps that were stitched together, the three of them stitched together, double stitched, and it just came out of nowhere and the biro split all over the place, bits of it stuck in my face and everything. And he dragged your man out and uh, stuck him in behind the door and started squeezing the door up and off him because he was writing with his left hand, screaming. What, what was it like going to school with that level of kind of fear? It was, you just hated education, couldn't stand it. My mother had a small bit of land that was left her in, uh, in from our previous marriage and okay. we moved down south for a year and uh, first real taste of freedom in education that I got I had to go to a Church of Ireland school for a year and there was no such thing as corporal punishment in it What I'd, was that like? What was that shift like? Uh, it was like being in paradise or something I'd know as a young person it was just I kind of fell back into education then because I enjoyed going to school and my mother couldn't understand the change in all of us because uh, two of my sisters had went to the nuns, so that was like torture to them as well. I had been there for two years myself. I remember my mother actually having a... I was in senior infants and she had a small essay that I wrote in senior infants. She had it in a frame up on the wall because... I got slapped in front of the class. I wrote a story, it was some mad story about a rabbit that was being chased and it was kind of, I'd seen a lot of, we used to eat rabbits and pheasants and that type of thing back then because I suppose we didn't have the money all the time for anything else, but my father used to hunt, you know. And uh, I had made this crazy story about a rabbit being chased anyway, and then the rabbit turned into the man and he chased the farmer away and something like that. But uh, she slapped me anyway. I can remember that image clearly in front of the class and she sent me home with a note in my copy saying that I had an overactive imagination. And that was a bad thing? And I was 
five years of age, I suppose. Oh, wow. So my mother framed it and put it up in the wall because she was so amused by the fact that she said a five-year-old had an overactive imagination. Well, you see, another aspect of when I went, when I changed to that school, it was a mixed school as well. So when I went on later and I went back to where I came from and I went to second-level education, and I noticed all the fellas that I was in school with that stayed in the Christian brother mentality, you know, and it was weird, like some of them used to come and they'd be saying to me, it started out with kind of jeering, but to be like, how are you always talking to them girls? Because they were terrified. They didn't know how to approach a girl in first year or anything like that. They were like, and if a girl stood next to them talking, they'd end up getting pissed off at them because they'd just go bright red and they wouldn't know what to say or they'd be afraid some of the lads were looking at them or anything like that. After school, I, funnily enough, I came out of school. I had been working all the time while I was growing up and I had a few of my own little businesses going and uh, I was always anything for money. <laughs> but I was, uh, I used to, go, we had an orchard, I used to sell apples. I used to go around to older people's houses and clean out their backyards. And I suppose back then there was a lot more of men stayed at home for a lot longer that didn't marry and that, you know. And uh, I discovered after a while cleaning the backyards that there was loads of bottles there, so I used to bring them back to the pub and i get money for that. i get money for cleaning up the yard. So. And then uh, next to where I was growing up, there was a bog, and I ended up working on that every year in the summer, so I had a good business going there as well. And when I left school, I went straight into a job as a maintenance man, seven days a week. It was one of the busiest hotels in Ireland for uh, for weddings. They were booked out for seven years. Wow. So that was a big introduction to the workforce. So I'm just picking up on the fact that you have mentioned that you had a number of businesses going while you were still in school. Mm. So obviously extremely entrepreneurial at a very young age. Very what, young, yeah. Where did you get that from in terms of, like, were they your, your own ideas? Um, what made you want to kind of set up businesses so young, apart from, you know, money? <laughs> yeah, I suppose it was the freedom, freedom to be able to travel then, you see, and my parents wouldn't say much to me because I always had an excuse as to where I was going. So uh, my mother actually helped me, funnily enough, build my first bicycle and... Uh, it was an old bike that I found out the back of my grandfather's house and uh, she showed me how to oil up the chain and strip down all the wheels and protect the inside of the wheel and she went to the shop with me. We got a spanner for tightening the spokes to straighten them and put new tyres on it. She showed me how to fix a puncher and all this kind of crack. There was one tube and she reckoned we could save it so she taught me how to fix a puncher on it and everything. And when I had that freedom then at a young age Travel started to be in my head then, and uh, I went off. I went into a meat factory and I started working in a meat factory in industrial cleaning. So, like, I mean, you have so many achievements, and it sounds like you've always been quite ambitious and hard working. How do you manage your day to day life now when you've been you've used your head and your body for so long for labour? How how do you find that now when things are kind of at a slower pace in here for you? How does how how's your head in that? I don't allow it to go slow, so I filled it up inside here as well, I suppose. I'm doing uh, history, maths and English in the Leaving Cert, and I'm doing uh, Junior Cert Geography and uh, QQI in computers and maths. So. Wow. Which one do you like the most? 
Uh, all of them. Oh. Can't say that now. The teachers are beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I like them all. Yeah, I have an interest in all of them. Uh, you see, the thing with me is when I master something, I get bored with it then and I have to move on. on. Where do you think that comes from? Um, I don't know. Not sure, really. Just I always had it in me to... Like with travelling, I've travelled all over the world. I, I left the meat factory when I did and the economy was going down here in Ireland. So I moved to uh, Belgium and I was in Holland and Germany for a while working and over the border in France. But I always had an interest in renovations, but there wasn't much of that going on here in Ireland. So I went to Belgium and I got in with a small firm that were building an Irish bar for a Dublin family, which is still there today. And uh, I got into the renovations then and I'd done three years at that. I'd done bar work over there. So that was yes, it feels like you've had um, lots of varied experiences in life. Um, what do you hope to do next? Like, what's, what's on the plan? Well, what I was doing before I came in was very interesting because I had a bad accident years ago. I was knocked down and I, had, I didn't know that I, had a, I was suffering from spondylitis. But what's that? It's a, like a spinal disease where the spine curves up on the top and the bottom. And uh, I worked away with it regardless. I always had a kind of stiffness and soreness in my back. But I went to my doctor. I had a small accident here in Ireland. And then I had another accident where I fell and I broke my back. And uh, I ended up in hospital. I slipped on ice or something and I was in hospital. And they'd done all these MRIs on me and they told me that a severe abnormal foramen or something it was called all the way down my neck and bulging discs in my lower back and trapped nerves and everything like that. So when I left the hospital, that was about four years ago, they were telling me that I had... Uh, they, no, they put me on medication. I was on... My daily script was Oxycontin, Oxynorm and Lyric. And I was to take that three times a day. So did them experiences kind of have a massive impact then on your sense of self being such a doer, out working... Like, was it quite frightening to know that you had all these issues going on and it might take you away from, I suppose, the usefulness of your day in how proactive you were in, in, in every single job that you've done? And, like, did that impact, I suppose, just your life changing somewhat? No, my mental health in a big way, because that was, um, like, with that type of illness and everything like that and the inability then... I had a lot of mental issues as a result of not being able to do anything. And then I had, uh, my doctor had a friend in the pain management clinic and he showed me where he was, I was just told, here's 200 euros a week and go on away or disabled, like there's nothing we can do with you anymore. And uh, apply for pain management. So he had sent seven emails from his office over a space of about six or seven months and got no reply. And I went for education then as well. There was three people interviewed me and they said that they should have no problem, but I have severe set-in arthritis as well. And uh, I got up after the interview. I knew I passed the interview. I'd never failed an interview in my life, thank God. But I got up and uh, I went over to open the door and I couldn't open the door. And one of them had to open the door for me. And then they sent me a letter and said that I couldn't go into education, which I found ridiculous as well, because if anything happened in the college that... I wouldn't be able to open the door. Oh, that doesn't make sense. No, it was just an excuse. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I was kind of blocked in that avenue, so then I had to rethink again 
and then things just kind of went spiraled out of control and my doctor had said to me that uh, he wouldn't he said if he renew my prescription for me just at once because he knew how much pain I was in but he said that if I wanted to renew the script again I'd have to find a different doctor and I didn't know what he was on about so then I went away and I researched what I was on and I came off all the medication yeah. but then I had endless amounts of time in the bed and suffering from that and going days on end without being able to move. Have you got a family at home? Yeah, four yeah, kids. Four kids. So that was tough then as well, you know, my youngest child not being able to pick her up and all this kind of thing and uh, that led on then I suppose I got, that's where I got hooked up in cocaine when I came off the medication because yeah. when I got into that I had a friend who was in college a lot of my friends are in high profile jobs some of them worked for me and went on into the bigger companies that came in in management and that I used to do door to door sales here in Dublin as well as another job that I done <laughs> 40 people on my, on my team so where do you think that leaves you now when you go home from here? Because you, you're, it sounds like you have lots of talents, lots of experience. Are you worried about what happens when you leave here in terms of people, I suppose, giving you opportunity and chance to actually continue to be, um, to participate in society in the way that you always have? No, because, you see, I had to come around that obstacle myself because, like I said to you earlier, I was consistently been told we need you because it's a government job we need you because this is another government job we need you because this is another mm. government job and then the government the minute I got sick it's like they threw me on the scrap heap and good luck here's 200 pound a week and go on away but uh, no for two years before I came in while I was waiting for my sentence I met up with a lot of nutritionists who were helping people with pain management and they showed me how I could change how I dealt with all the pain issues by diet. Obviously the diet is different in here and you wouldn't go down the roads of... Too I looked at noodles. looked at uh, <laughs> the vegetarian option, we'll say, but um, so I was two years off meat, bread. So did, did you begin to grow some of your food as well as part of the yeah, nutrition we were, plan? It was a community-based project that I was on for two years as well because, you see, when you can't... I had to find something where when I couldn't get out of bed every day that I had to find something that was more like a hobby, as in work. So I was helping this crowd that started a community-based garden centre, and it was a very successful project. So then how do you maintain your well-being in here when you've obviously found coping mechanisms with the, with the growing the food, working in the community projects, all that stuff that got you out of the bed after being in the bed? Well, I'm forced back into it now. now? Yeah. Forced back into it now, I suppose. You're going yeah. at 7 o'clock at night and you're not out until half nine in the morning, so... It's hard, you have to walk around, I have to try and walk around as much as I can in the cell and that, you know. But do you read? I do, I read a lot. There's, that, that's a kind of a joke on my land, and if you're looking for me, move move the books out of the way and you'll find them in the cells. I'm not reading as much now, I suppose, because I'm taking up with schoolwork more yeah. so than anything, so that keeps my head. I just have to, you know, when the, the freedom of being able to go all the time. Like. I've never been that. All I do is rap. All I know is me. All I know is that, all I know is lifers, all I know is this, all I know is jail, all I know is the bin. What came true to me from one of them, I think it was Paul, and Paul was kind of pointing to the fact that it was wrong that he was put into an institutional home at the age of 11 for not attending school. And I think 
it's important to kind of capture some of them moments where we think of those men now as young boys who were very failed by the interventions that they received as children. But when somebody becomes an adult, I think sometimes we try and separate them from their history. And I think that this episode is really asking, are you listening to not even the man that sat before me in that interview, but to the little boy who was, and things could have been very different. Don't have to lie, just do your thing. If you're right on world or on the wing. Yeah. Everybody trying to be someone else. I'm just trying to be me. Go crazy, AG. So, Paul, I think the best place to probably just begin the conversation is talking a little bit about who who you are, like where you're from and, and, and life growing up and some of your experiences, I suppose, in early life. Yeah, I grew up in the north in our city. And, yeah, in the 90s, I was born in the 80s. Grew up in the north in our city in the children 90s. Obviously, you know, that was like, it was tough, like, growing up in there. And I was allowed to run wild in the flats I grew up in. They were what I wanted, like... And then I was going to school, start falling out of school, missing classes and all that, 10, 10 years of age, I'd say, yeah. And getting tall, I was only a stupid cunt, this and that. And then 11 years of age, I was took out of my house, brought to the children's court and put into a home. Okay. From, like, from there, I was put into a home into St. Michael's at 11 years of age. I had to man up straight away because like, I was brought through with criminals, obviously, and I didn't know anything about criminality at the time. But was in there with people that were in for serious crimes. Like I know it's only a home back then, but it was hard. Like you know what I mean. I took away my family just for not going to school. Like I think it was wrong. Like you know what I mean. It, it is wrong. You know what I mean, I like, mean clearly there was support needed, not uh, removal from the family home. Yeah, of course. Um, what was what was it like growing up on the flats? Like you talk about that level of freedom, um, but it's also there's also a great sense of community and together. Yeah, I mean, all the there? families stuck together in the flats. One thing about you don't see it this day, but it's kind of coming back. I think through the pandemic and all, but. Back years ago, growing up, like, you were never short of this or that, and the flats, everyone looked out for each other. Back growing up, like, even, like, asking people, I missed out on the money, I'd buy you, i shopping and all, like, just for money, because you had to do things for money, like, because obviously it was rough, tough back at home, like, with growing up with no money and this and that, so, looking back growing up, like, I just uh, don't understand why that I was put in a home when I was 11 years of age for not going to school, like, I'd know I was put into that, and I was labelled already as a kid as being a criminal, but... People didn't know I was only in there for not going to school. Like, in terms of growing up, had you many siblings or? Yeah, a lot of stepsisters and stepbrothers as well. Growing yeah. up, we all looked out for each other. Like, but they had that tough in their life as well. Like, through drugs and all. Growing up, like, and then obviously I started smoking cigarettes, picking cigarettes up off the ground out of that people. Like, then start drinking, taking ecstasy and all. Like. What age were you when you started taking, drinking and taking ecstasy? About, about 11 or 12, about 12 or so I was starting to start drinking, smoking hash and all. Mm. But then at 13, 14, like, I was taking ecstasy. I was getting out from weekends from homes. Like, I went to St. Michael's for three weeks assessment for not going to school. That ended up for about 16 weeks. Then I was brought back to the children's court and sent to St. Lagans for two and a half years for not going to school. Like, you know what I mean? How did that make you feel? Because I know you're saying, like... Um, <coughs> That wasn't fair and it shouldn't have happened and, and it shouldn't. But um it must you must feel quite let down, I suppose, in life for that if experience. I'd know I'd know say and what was going on back then, like, like to, to be put in like from a police officer to come up to my house at eleven years of age and take me out and bring me straight to a children's court 
for not going to school like like how was how was that right like you know what I mean? Yeah, were you scared? Of course, man, it's crying going out like but you had when you got there you had to put on a brave face, like you know what I mean? And tell me a little bit if you don't mind about I suppose that first experience of going into St Michael's, like, you know, what was the surroundings like? What was your day like? What was that like for an eleven year old child? So, I think I was at twelve years of age and I was about twelve or t- eleven and a half, eleven and I had to get them to said oh, I was smoking at the time. Even for a place like that, they let me smoke. Like, oh, we have to get permission off your yeah, ma. I understand that, but I had to go on the phone and said, Ma, you better let me fucking smoke. Like, what, what am I meant to do? Like, so to put me ma in that situation back then, for me, like, saying, Ma, you better put, let me smoke and I'm going to run. Like, you know what I mean? I'm going to run out of the place. And then um, she had to say, Yes, yeah, so they were giving me four smokes a day. Like, you had it on a smoke box where you have your yoke, like, Paul, like this and that, what many smokes you had. You could nip your smoke, put it back in the smoke box. But for staff, like, for the let to give me the chance to ring home and ask for the smoke, they should just tell me no straight away. Like, you know what I mean? Mm. It kind of seems hypocritical that yeah. you're there for not being in school, school but we'll let, let you smoke, do like, something else yeah. that's not healthy for your, yeah, yeah, that's I mean. not beneficial for your health. On the other hand, so it seems a bit, it seems quite hypocritical, doesn't it? Yeah, and definitely best to have to ring me mad and ask me can I smoke? Like, and you better let me, I better say yeah, because I'm legging if you don't. So we must thinking like, oh, he's gonna run. What are you gonna do next to him? Like, where are you gonna put him now? You know what I mean? Hard on my mum, my dad came, my dad used to walk out every week out there, like, and like, even though my dad said, Mama walking out, I said, no, I get the 40 out, and about half eight, I'd get how Paul come up to the front room, walk up, oh yeah, he's there, lovely, like, my dad actually knew I went out on the bus, but he still come out to make sure I went in, like, you know what I mean, when I got out for the weekends, I was like, just, like, looking back now, like, you know what I mean, it's horrible, like, you know what I mean. How do you think that impacted your mum and dad at the time? They could have done better as well, but... What could they do? Like, I just run out of the house. Like, if oh, you're going to school, but you're getting told by teachers you're a thick hunt sit at the back of the room, so you're labelled and you're just it's horrible. Back, like, looking back at it now over the years, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, do you think of that young part? Because I'm just imagining you now, you know, at that young age, and you just kind of want to go back and wrap your arms around them and course, mind them, yeah, you know? definitely. Like, you know what I mean? But it's horrible, like, back then, looking back, like, even. They put me from up to me 16, like it was all because I'm not going to school. Like, like my room, life was ruined before I even started. Like, I mean, I didn't know nothing else different. Like, mm. I, I missed this so many classes in the school, you missed school. And tell me a little bit about school because it sounds like it wasn't a very nice experience. So, um, why were they saying that you were a tick? Like, why were so, they? So, I'm dyslexic. Like, I was only told that two and a half years ago by someone in the school. Well, like, I went back to school, I've done every course since I'm in the school. Like, I love the school now to this day. Like, and I love it if I had a chance back years out to do it right. But obviously I was in no mind to do it that way, you know what I mean? But do it now, like, do the school now. I love it, like, you know what I mean? Doing every class in the school, tell the truth, like. Mm. I've got, I've got, uh, I've got a, a B first, or I've got a C first, and then I went back and done the next year in the junior set and I got a B. Brilliant. So proud of myself now, the only, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I was just put down as a kid, like, so... So I just said, I'm not going to school, they're going to put me at the house. I used to get told to sit in the corner and face the wall and all, like, for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, like... What does that feel like when you're that young and you're obviously, you know, reputation and persona and how you're perceived by your fellow students has a big impact on a child's development at that laugh age? laughing at you, on the school, like, obviously, are good, good kids and they're, they're the same way as he's sitting over there and all, oh, he can't read this and that and all. 
it's horrible like, isn't it? How different do you think things would have been? So you, now you get investment in terms of people helping you learn and you being able to really obviously discover that, first of all, that you're not thick, <laughs> um, which most people aren't. Um, yeah. They just need somebody to actually support them with their learning. Um, how different do you think life would have been had you have got somebody's support when you were a young person? Probably wouldn't be in prison today. Mm. Be honest, I probably wouldn't be in prison. If I had, like, psychologists or someone to come out and assess me, and they, like, they didn't get nothing when I was growing obsessed or nothing. Like, they just... It's not my fault I couldn't study how to read, like, you know what I mean? Mm. They should have been kept trying to out, but obviously I could have been messing in school as well, like, you know what I mean? I'm an 11-year-old kid, like, what do you expect me to do, like, you know what I mean? But yeah. I was allowed to do what I wanted in the school, and it just went off my head and it just fucked me out. Then mm. come up, it was horrible, like, you know what I mean? How do you um, get over the fe- that sense of rejection? Um, and I'm sorry to put words on it, but, like, if you're rejected, it feels like you're rejected in the classroom. And then you're rejected in a sense by being removed from your family home. Um, all, like, how do you heal from that? It's still, it's still, it's still not heal from it now at the moment, to tell the truth. Like, but I fell in with a crowd of people that, that I felt loved with. But looking back now, how the years I realised I've only been used to doing things. Like, I mean, you, you think you're loved by them, but you're not. Like, I mean, you get locked up and then you don't hear, you don't hear from you don't that. Then you go back out again, you're back out in the same crowd. Like, it's just hardly grown up, like I mean. Do you think? Do you think young men get involved in uh, criminality or in certain situations because they are just they are looking for a sense of belonging, a sense of loyalty? Yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. People just want to. Some kids want to feel loved, and they're probably not getting loved at home, but they feel loved then when they meet a lot of young folks. Like mm-hmm. you fall into that, and before you know it, you're necking it, like I mean. Because. Nah, I want you to hear the force, eh? I don't know if it's going to be any good or anything, but... Uh, of course it's good, it's from the heart, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's real life stuff, like, you know? And uh, it's stuff about my ex-girlfriend having a kid and all, and yeah. having to leave him and all coming in here. And my dad having an addiction, he's on heroin 15 years, like, and I'm in here now, and... and yeah, right, so it's... Uh, the head is what it's like to have an addiction and living with it. Looking back at my childhood when I was a kid, reminiscing the days of everything I did, don't worry, I'm going to tell you my journey in confidence and in style, get a coffee, put your feet up, because this may take a while. I'd have scabs up my nose from sniffing for days, waiting from, for the phone to ring or a knock from the shades. The life I was living had me suicidal and depressed. I think this was God's way of putting me to the test. It was sentencing day and I got four years. I was shocked and confused and just full of tears. Eyes all bloodshot, rash under my nose, 20 quid in my pocket and a small bag of clothes. As we pulled up to the prison and drove through the gates, loyalty, honour, respect, all I had was faith. No one who was inside and didn't have me back. Loyalty was the last thing I taught my friends would lack. First day in prison and being on my own, depressed from addiction, I was skin and bone. Eight o'clock came and I got the ring home. It was sad to hear I was now all alone. Being on protection was no way of living, so I packed up my shit and went to Weefield Prison. They started many fights with me because I wasn't a dub. Little did they know fighting was the thing I loved. Then they get bet and call all their mates. They fell every one of them, just like all the greats. I'm in this place nearly two years, walking around all confident, no longer a man in fear. Thinking they could beat me until they got a punch, all big men until it came to the crunch. I've been jumped by many and tacked with a blade, but I've a lot of enemies, but a lot of friends made. Flat out training, trying to get big in the world now and haven't touched a thing. I look fresh and I'm feeling great when all I need was love and faith. I manned up and came to prison, changed my life and played the system. As I watch lads come and go every single day, hoping that be me soon, all I can do is pray. As days go by and time goes slow, I'm biding my time and going with the flow. <laughs> is it good, sir? Yo. Conversations on the Margins is a limited series podcast produced by me, Lynn Rowan, and the team at Alfonso Films, in partnership with Go Loud and funded by the Rhone Trust, with the support of the IPS and Governor Eddie Mullins. 
Sound on Location was recorded by Dave Fannin and Rob Moore, with editing and sound design by Kieran O'Connor. The music used in this series is written and performed by students in the Educational Centre in Weefield Prison. I would also like to thank the principal and teachers in the Education Centre of Weefield Prison for facilitating this podcast and for all your support. Finally, and most importantly, I would like to thank each and every one of the men who sat down with me, opened up and had a very real conversation. I know it wasn't easy, but I'm very grateful. Join us next week for more conversations on the margin. They rub you, stab you in the heart, so kick it up before you start.